0: Hello, everyone. Did you miss me? For the last few weeks and months, while I've been struggling with juggling work and some ongoing health issues, I've had this internal debate in my mind about the podcast. I really wanted to bring it back as soon as I had the time and energy to do so. But at the same time, all of the energy I'd usually use for research outside of my ordinary work was entirely focused on what the threat from what was called the Wuhan coronavirus, but is now very much the world's coronavirus. Um, If you're listening to this, you probably know all about the basic facts already. We're now in the midst of a global pandemic, the potential scale of which we haven't seen for a 100 years since the Spanish flu in 1918-1919. If your country hasn't yet implemented lockdown measures, they are probably on the way. As I write this in London, the official advice is to avoid all non-necessary social contact, and in a few weeks the advice may well be more draconian. So I was stuck in the midst of an internal debate for ages. Do I write an episode about this? Do I do an episode about the coronavirus pandemic? On one level, I'm a physicist, I'm not an epidemiologist, and so it's not my area to write a special episode on this topic, as it was when, say, the neutron star merger happened or the Nobel Prize in Physics is awarded. I'm totally aware that there is massive saturation everywhere about this pandemic right now. A lot of what I have to say is not going to be news to you, and we'll just add one more take to the ocean of takes that you can find across the planet at the moment. At the same time, the information that's available to us is being rapidly updated all of the time, and so, even if I get this podcast finished and recorded today, it will probably be out of date by the time you hear it. This is probably already far too late, and I should have written and recorded it weeks ago when I first started looking at this to get the information out there, but that doesn't matter now, that's my fault for being slow. Some of this info might be wrong, and I'll attempt to point out where I'm guessing, Not even the experts can truly honestly give you more than a very well-educated guess about how this is all going to pan out, because a pandemic on this scale, with this kind of virus and so many unknowns, is quite unprecedented in their lifetimes too, and in modern society, so not everything is going to be correct. And the psychological burden of dealing with this thing, for what I'm afraid will be many, many months to come, is going to be severe for all of us, so it might well be that the last thing anyone wants to hear is yet another discussion of the coronavirus. These are all excellent arguments for keeping me me keeping my trap shut and instead continuing to work on the other scripts that I've been squeezing into my spare time lately, but on the other hand, the other overwhelming compelling side is that the fact since about the 12th of February when the first few cases arrived in my country, the UK, and it became very clear to me that this was unlikely to be contained within Wuhan and within China, where I'd been seeing terrible message, messages from for weeks since the lockdown with a friend of mine who lives in Wuhan. It's been pretty much all I've been thinking about, reading about, conjuring up theories about, worst case scenarios about. So, There are plenty of compelling arguments for me not to do this episode. If they sound good to you, switch off. If you're going to find it upsetting to listen to me discuss this as a supposed leisure activity, switch off. Call someone you care about instead. I will try my hardest to be back soon with what I promise will be non-pandemic related content about, I don't know, stars, artificial intelligence, society in general, anything else, really if for some reason though you're a sucker for punishment on this stuff, or if you wanted to hear what I thought about it, indulge me as I try to write about it, because this is really, this is a therapeutic exercise for me as much as anything else, just to try and clear some space in my brain for other matters, essentially. So I should say that A lot of what drove my concern about this virus was all the research I did way back in 2017 for the Teot-Wauke series, The End of the World As We Know It, on pandemics. I listened back to that, and while bits of it sound hopelessly naive and scientifically muddled, other parts of it sound, you know, not prophetic. But the whole message that the relentless research on The End of the World As We Know It really drove home to me is just how much we all seem to accept that our way of life our way of understanding the world and behaving in it, the structures that form our society are taken for granted as immutable, unchangeable, when in actual fact there are plenty of things out there that might change them. Both on a personal and a global societal level, there are rare events that can happen which will just wreck all of the assumptions that you made about the future and cause you to reorganise your priorities. For the last few weeks, as the news has continued to accelerate, I've been conjuring up this kind of scenario in my head and hoping that it wouldn't actually come to pass in the end, but this is what's happening now. I should also say that by no means is this the end of the world, but the world won't be as we know it for quite some time. One of the curious things about this pandemic is that statistically speaking, the risk to any given individual is probably quite low, maybe lower than you even imagine it being at the moment, for reasons that we'll get into further a bit later on. And we know that we have this cognitive bias. As humans, we always think that if the risk is low, but the event is disastrous, we think of it being worse than it is. It's actually a good way to sell insurance. There was an example of uh, people talking about insurance for flights, Uh, which you could get by, um, you could get people to pay more if you were more specific about the disasters they were protected against. And now everyone in the world has a pretty good idea of what having coronavirus might be like. Uh, They're all imagining a very specific disaster in their head, and so they perceive it as being more likely than it is, than something vague that they didn't understand. And you you can completely understand how this is influencing us when it comes to this pandemic, right? The idea that maybe in the future there'll be some random pandemic was not threatening or scary to people two or three years ago, enough for them to pay attention to it. And now that it's a very specific thing, and they can see specific examples of specific people going through what this might mean, it's a much more specific threat. The threat is the same, the threat is the same as it always was, but because it's so much more specific, we view it as being more likely and more dangerous. So the risk to any individual is is very low, and I think it's important to remember that of the people who get this thing, maybe half of them won't even know they have it. Uh, 80% of the rest, perhaps more, will have a really mild illness. Unfortunately, when you multiply a low risk to any given individual by a hell of a lot of individuals, the risk to society at large becomes substantial. 1% multiplied by 70 million people is 700,000 people. And again, if that's the kind of sum you don't want to hear about, switch off now. So let's begin with what we know. In December 2019, the first cluster of pneumonia patients of an unknown cause appeared in a hospital in Wuhan, China. Wuhan is a city of about 11 million people, so about the size of London, and it's a testament to just how huge China is, that this is not a city that a lot of people have heard of prior to this outbreak. I know I had not Epidemiological tracing has worked out that the first person to apparently have symptoms had those symptoms on the 1st of December, although there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests the virus was maybe circulating in people a while before that, in mid-November, say. So this is one of the first the key things to understand about this virus, I think. There's a delay involved. Once you get infected it can take up to 14 days for any symptoms to show up once you get ill the disease progresses like a mild cold or flu in most people for the first week or so and for most people that's all they ever experience and then they get better but in a small fraction of people it can get worse and continually get worse until they have this viral pneumonia that's inflammation of the lungs that is caused by a virus so what does this mean for the virus outbreak initially Well, the most obvious sign that anyone has the disease is when a whole bunch of patients with viral pneumonia show up at the hospital, and they test negative for the flu or anything else that can normally cause viral pneumonia. But you can immediately see why this is a problem. If, say, 10% of the people who get this develop pneumonia and symptoms bad enough to go to the hospital, and we'll come back to this later, then let's say you notice 10 people with viral pneumonia showing up at your hospital. That means that three or four weeks ago, you had 100 people in the community with the virus, because it's taken those people Or four weeks to get to the stage where they need to go to the hospital. So, three or four weeks ago, you had 100 people, 10 of them got sick enough to go to the hospital, and you're just noticing it now. And most of those people, uh, the 100 people who just have mild illness, will have been spreading this for a while. So, by the time someone unfortunately dies of this disease, statistically speaking, as the death rate with good medical care is around 1%, you probably had 100 people with the illness in your community as long as a month ago. So, by the time you're aware of the outbreak, by the time you know something is going on, It's already bigger than you think it is. In fact, in the pandemics episode in 2017, we theorised that the worst kind of virus to emerge would be one that was initially asymptomatic or showed small, hardly noticeable symptoms for a long time, which would allow people to travel and spread it internationally before anyone realised what was happening. And unfortunately, that appears to be exactly what happened here, which explains why the current situation is so severe. So a little bit of terminology then. I mean, this virus is called SARS-CoV-2, for reasons we'll explain. Uh, basically, it's a bit like SARS, and it's a coronavirus, which gives you the cough. And the disease that it causes is coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19. So the virus itself has a different name to the disease it causes. Uh, like most people, I'll probably just carry on saying coronavirus. We all know what we're talking about here. Initial reporting suggested that the cluster of cases of this new virus could mostly be related back to a seafood market in Wuhan itself. This would make sense as the origin of a new kind of virus because as we discussed in the pandemic episode way back in 2017 new kinds of worrying viruses often arise from animal transfer into humans in these markets lots of animals and lots of humans live in very close proximity so it's easy to imagine that a virus that began in bats which are mammals might mutate and jump into other mammals like pangolins and then mutate once again and make the leap into humans that's the current working theory for what might have happened here. We don't know exactly yet, and more will probably come out in time as we find out what precisely happened. But bats are reservoirs. They have potentially hundreds of different strains of viruses in their system at one time. So the probability the mutation happens might not all be that high, but with enough time and enough mutations, eventually this kind of thing does happen. And indeed, there were two previous outbreaks, at least. One of Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, and another of MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which have also been traced to coronaviruses that are suspected to have crossed over from animals into people at one point or another. This happens roughly every 10 years. These outbreaks make for good case studies as to why some viruses are more potentially uh, liable to cause pandemics than others. Um, Both of these viruses have much higher fatality rates than the new coronavirus. SARS ultimately killed around 11% of those infected, MERS was around 34%. We think that SARS-CoV-2, that coronavirus disease, is around 1%. We'll talk a bit later about specifics around that number. Paradoxically, the high fatality rate is a big part of the reason why those viruses have been easier to contain so far. It's actually, seemingly paradoxically, the fact that the new coronavirus has a low fatality rate and appears to be mild for most people who get it, That is allowing it to spread so quickly. The traditional approach to containing such an infection is one that you've probably seen your own country attempt to do in recent times. Test sick people, work out who they came into contact with, trace each and every one of those contacts, and quarantine them, providing medical treatment where required. For small outbreaks, you can actually hope to cut off nearly every connecting strand to prevent the virus from getting out and infecting anyone else. A few weeks ago, it became clear in most European countries that community spread had started i.e. cases that were not linked to any known other cases, which is a sign that this attempt to contain the virus was failing. It has now failed in most countries in the world, um, although it was always going to be an extremely difficult task due to the basic properties of the virus, which is something that the experts uh, saw all along. And let me try and explain why this is and how it compares to other coronaviruses that we've seen in the past. So the difference here is that people infected with SARS or MERS were usually very severely ill, which makes them very easy to identify. If you're severely ill, you're unlikely to be going out and infecting other people in the community, and you're much more likely to be isolated at home, where the contacts you have are easier to trace or in the hospital. Not that outbreaks can't occur in hospitals, the Toronto SARS outbreak, which ultimately killed 43 and resulted in 251 people getting sick, was entirely traced back to a single patient who went to hospital after flying back from Hong Kong with the illness. A big part of the reason was that few people were aware of the condition and they didn't have the proper protective equipment. In the Prince of Wales Hospital in Hong Kong in the early days of the outbreak, up to 99 people were ultimately infected by a single patient while treating the person. There are reports out there that people with SARS were not actually that contagious until a few days after they started showing symptoms, which means that as long as everyone is on high alert, you can hope to track down and identify each individual case of SARS and limit the spread to healthcare facilities and the network of connections that we talked about. MERS has an even more severe disease, um, and it appears to struggle to transmit person to person as easily, so it's easier to contain than the new coronavirus for similar reasons. In the pandemics episode in 2017, we pointed out that viruses like bird flu, where the fatality rate is high and the symptoms often severe, are thankfully not well adapted to become pandemics for this very reason. As a virus, it's best not to kill or incapacitate your host. Viruses need hosts to survive if they can walk around essentially perfectly happily infecting others for an extended period of time, as is the case with the common colds, then the virus won't die out so easily. New viruses, though, that transfer from animals to people, we call them zoonotic in origin, are often not particularly attuned to humans, though, which is why they can initially kill a lot of people, and sometimes will eventually be replaced by a mild strain which can spread more easily, as it's actually evolutionary advantageous for the virus not to kill people, but to continue to reproduce for as long as possible. After all, the scary virus like this we do a lot to combat, whereas if people get a cold, they won't care. With the new coronavirus, though, we have no such luck because lots of cases are mild and the disease spreads rapidly because, as it's a new illness which no one in the world is immune to, and now very, very few people in the world are immune to this virus, um, it can spread rapidly because no one has immunity, and it can also spread rapidly because of the properties of the virus. Uh, It can spread, we think, through droplet transmission, which means if you're within a one or two metre range of someone who is coughing, uh, you could potentially inhale the virus that way. It can also spread, we think, through surfaces. So if someone is infected with the virus, they could be shedding these virus particles. A surface they touch could have the virus particles on. And then if you touch that and touch your face, you can have it spread to you, which in cities in the tube where every day for the last few weeks while I've been working for this parliament internship, I've sort of had to grab the tube handrail. Uh, and that's probably been touched by lots and lots of other people. So in this sense, the washing of hands is very important. So given that this thing has got out now, we need to look at some of the characteristics of this virus to understand what this pandemic might potentially result in. One of the key measures that people use to characterize pandemics and new viruses is the so-called r naught value. That's the basic reproduction number. So this is, if you're infected, the average number of people that you will go on to infect. It's worth saying that this depends on an awful lot of things, For example, it depends on the symptoms that the virus has, how good it is at spreading itself around, how long people are sick for, and how many people they interact with. Initial estimates for this virus suggests that the R0 is somewhere around 2.4. Initially, they thought it was between 2 and 3. Now it's converging towards the lower side, 2.2, 2.4, around there. So for each one person who's infected, uh, around 2.4 people will get infected by that person. One obvious point to make here is that as long as R0 is more than one, i.e. each person infects more than one other person on average, you're going to see a growth in cases. The aim of containment and control measures is to reduce R0 to less than one so that gradually the disease dies out. When we talk about R0 here, we'll be assuming that there are no control measures at all, but you will know that control measures can reduce it and that's why they're so important. So just a brief comparison to some other diseases. Seasonal flu has an R0 of 1.4. It's less contagious, perhaps because people have some immunity to seasonal flu due to the vaccines that are regularly produced, or because they've encountered similar strains before, or perhaps due to the nature of the symptoms for a bout of seasonal flu. We know, for example, that in the Spanish flu, it seemed like one of the reasons why older people survived better than younger people in that case was because they'd encountered a previous flu strain which might have given them some immunity. But there are other diseases that are far more contagious. Measles, for example, has an r naught of between 12 and 18, and smallpox had an R0 between 5 and 7. So you can see that there are some truly terrifying pandemics out there in history that have been even more infectious than this new coronavirus. We can learn something else interesting from R0, and this is that it actually gives you a rough estimate for what total percentage of the population might end up being infected with a disease if nothing is done. This very rough estimate is quite easy to understand mathematically. Let's assume that once people are infected, they're immune. If your disease has an R0 of two, that means that you will infect two other people on average. So now you imagine that the whole population is mingling about, getting sick and recovering, until half of everyone is now immune to this disease. Then, of those two people you go on to infect, one will be immune already and won't get infected. So the actual r naught is now one, which means that you're infecting just one person on average. At this point, the number of new cases will start to decline. This is something a little like what we might call herd immunity, if you get infected but most of the people you meet are immune there's not going to be an outbreak. For a very simple virus model we can expect 1 minus 1 over R naught of the people could get sick in total so by the time that many people are sick it means that you might be infected you might have the virus but the people you're meeting are mostly immune or they have the virus already and so you can't infect them so on average you will then be infecting less than one person and uh, you won't be spreading the virus on average. So You plug into that simple formula, R0 2.4, you get about 58%, 60% of people will get sick in total before the disease will stop spreading. Okay, so we have this toy model here. You'll clearly see a couple of things. The first is that this is a really rough estimate. If people don't widely circulate, or say infected people are kept together and away from immune people as much as possible, then the R0 is going to go down. It's assuming no control measures and everyone mixing together. The second thing you'll notice is that this is an equilibrium estimate. Physicists love these, so basically this is saying, okay, we don't know what will happen at any given time, but eventually, once everything's finished, once things are all done, what will things end up looking like? And you know, a lot of modelling involves equilibrium estimates, because the way that things change through time can be complicated, but the end state is, is, is easy to understand. For example, you might not know what happens in your entire life, but you probably know that you were born at the start of it, and you also know what happens at the end. The equilibrium points are easier to find than the bit in the middle. Once you take time out of the equation, just for looking for the next time that your system will stop evolving and be in a steady state, you don't need to worry about it anymore, and you can just consider the long, long term. So in equilibrium, once the disease has run its course, in this toy model, about 60% of people could be infected. And finally, you can see just how crucial uncertainty about the true R0 value is uh, important to how much damage you think this disease could do. So, for example, there's a paper online. All the papers about coronavirus are free to read if you want to read them, so it's very interesting. Um, It's called Estimation of the Reproductive Number of Novel Coronavirus and the Probable Outbreak Size on the Diamond Princess Cruise Ship. So this was the cruise ship that was quarantined, um, attempted quarantined, where a lot of people unfortunately got sick with the coronavirus, and it's been a really interesting case study for us to learn more about how this disease behaves, although not great for the people who are on the ship. So in that paper, they estimate that the R0 was between 2.06 and 2.52. Initial estimates with less data assumed it was between 2 and 3. The difference between 2 and 3 is the difference between 50% and 67% of your population eventually getting sick, which is millions of people in your country or mine. For the seasonal flu epidemics, you might naively expect 28% of the population to get sick if there was no vaccine at all for a new flu. Um, to give you a, an estimate, there was a swine flu pandemic in 2009. They think between 11 and 21% of people eventually got the swine flu. There was a vaccine produced for that, but I don't know how effective the vaccine was in reducing that number. But um, it just goes to show, for that flu, you might have expected 28%. It ended up being 11 to 21%. So... It's not terribly wrong, but it could be wrong by quite a a bit, this naive estimate, especially in light of the things that we do to stop the virus. But you have to assume that if you do nothing, then 60% of people will eventually get infected. You can also incidentally see from this toy model why vaccines for much faster spreading illnesses like measles are so absolutely crucial. If measles has an R0 of 12, then to be safe, you have to have 92% of the population vaccinated. Otherwise, if anyone gets measles, they will probably spread it to more than one other person, and you'll have an outbreak that will grow in size, although obviously not as badly and not as quickly as it would if no one was vaccinated at all. There's one other important thing to think about in this toy model, and it brings in another toy model that is the favourite of physicists and tech people everywhere. I noticed that a lot of Silicon Valley companies were the first to close down their events, and I actually think this is why they think exponentially. They think about the exponential all the time. Exponential growth in mathematics. What does it mean? Well you can simply think of it as doubling in a given period of time. Now exponential growth happens when the rate of growth of something is proportional to the amount of something you have. So the classic example and the way that the exponential was actually discovered is this idea of compound interest. You have your money in a bank account, it pays interest 5% a month. If things continue to increase in terms of percentages, eventually your money will double, and eventually it will double again, and double again, and so forth. And, you know, compound interest is a very good thing uh, if you want to make a lot of money. In the case of a virus, exponential growth is exactly what we should expect, because the rate of growth, the rate of new people getting infected, depends on how many people are already infected. If you have 100 people running around spreading the virus, you know, they'll infect 100, 200 other people, If you have a 1,000, they'll infect 2,000 other people, and so on. And when I say they'll infect, I don't mean the people are responsible. People are never responsible for this. No one is responsible for this. It is the virus, obviously. But to say the virus through them infects, etc., is just too clunky. So the reason exponential growth holds is because the rate of change of the number of infected people is proportional to the number you have now. And that's why you would expect it to be exponential. So don't try and do any mathematical analysis about, oh, today the cases look a bit linear, oh, today the number of people who get this look a bit linear, you expect it to be exponential because mathematically that's what it should be. And it makes perfect sense that it would be. And unfortunately, unless you can capture all of the people who have this thing, um, it will still be exponential. Even if you capture 99% of the people who have this thing, it will still be exponential because there will still be a growing minority that you don't capture who will be spreading this thing. So it exponential growth... It could be slow exponential or fast exponential, but that just changes how long it takes to double, okay? So once exponential growth is going, maybe it doubles more slowly, maybe it doubles faster, but ultimately you expect it to double. And for this disease, we suspect that the doubling could occur every four to seven days, depending on how much people are interacting and so on. And this means in practice, if you're not used to thinking about these things, that this stuff will very quickly appear to get out of hand there's a classic parable about the uh, mathematician and the emperor. The mathematician performs some service for the emperor. He says, okay, uh, what prize do you want? He says, uh, I'll take one grain of rice on the first square of a chessboard, and then two on the second, four on the next one, and so on. The uh, the emperor is just thinking one, two, four grains of rice, easy, no problem. But ultimately, uh, given how many squares there are on a chessboard, he ends up having to hand over trillions of grains of rice. Um, And that's what doubling can do. Very quickly it gets out of hand, so let's put some numbers to that. Assume a doubling time of 4 days and we start with a single sick person. These are just estimates. Reality might be quicker, we don't know. After 8 days we have 4 sick people. After 16 days we have 16 sick people, barely noticeable. After a month we have 256, at which point you might start to have a few cases of pneumonia show up at your hospital. Another week you have a 1000. Another week, you have 4,000 sick people, and you start to notice a few people maybe dying of your hospital of coronavirus. That would be around six weeks from the start of the epidemic. After another two weeks, two months or so in total, you'd have 65,000 sick people. It's worth noting that according to the UK Chief Medical Officer, this is approximately where we are in the UK, uh, as I write this on the 17th of March. This is pretty coherent with the epidemic, starting with a single undetected patient in mid-January, and now six to eight weeks later, two months later, we have uh, 65,000 sick people perhaps around that. Uh, and it makes sense because people were likely traveling in from Wuhan at that point in mid January, and we just didn't catch them all. And it's not possible to do that. It doesn't seem uh, that we could do that. So you can infer the numbers just as easily for your own country. It will likely be something similar to that. Might be slower in some, might be faster in others, depending on how well they've done in the initial phases of the outbreak. But uh if there's community spread, this is how it grows. You know, maybe the first arrivals from Wuhan kept to themselves, maybe they hopped straight on public transport, maybe efforts to track down early cases were successful, or maybe they weren't. So there's luck and randomness, but on average, this exponential model should be approximately correct. But remember that because pneumonia takes two to three weeks to develop once you get this illness right now, the hospitals are only seeing the results of what we had two to three weeks ago. So essentially, any pressure you see on hospitals now is from the 4,000 sick people who were sick two weeks ago, not the 64,000 who are probably sick now. Naturally, you can then carry this on to its grim conclusion. You would have in another two weeks or so, perhaps 500,000 sick people, maybe a million a week later, and so on and so forth. At this point, things will get rather grim for your healthcare system. One thing I haven't mentioned so far is testing. Testing is clearly crucial to any attempt to squash the epidemic in the early stages, but testing is inevitably limited and not just by things like the number of test kits you can produce and manufacture. For a test to be properly conducted, someone needs to come to you in full protective equipment and swab your nose and mouth. With limited nurses and medical staff who can do this at any one time, the bottleneck for conducting tests is going to be in trained personnel, rather than necessarily anything to do with the number of tests that have been made. Today, the UK managed to test around 4,000 people, which is pretty good going, but it's obvious that the testing now is just going to give us a vague idea of which regions and individuals are being hit, rather than necessarily doing anything to stop the spread of the virus. If the rough exponential model is accurate, and it appears to be close to the estimate of 55,000 that the CMO gave today to Parliament, then obviously the 2,000 people who have tested positive in the UK are a drop in the ocean, and we can no longer rely on the classic method of testing people, isolating them, tracking down their contacts and so forth. Although this is all valuable work and might help us slow down the spread of the disease and understand where it is, if it can possibly be done, it won't now contain the epidemic in in my country or indeed in many other countries now. Given that different countries are testing by different amounts and with different levels of success, one very rough if morbid way you can infer how far along each country is in its outbreak is the death rate. If you assume that the death rate is somewhere between 1 and 5 percent depending on healthcare, care, of which more later, you can divide the current number of deaths by that and account for the time lag to get you an estimate of how many people are sick now. In the UK, as of yesterday, 55 people have sadly died. That means three weeks ago when those people started to get sick, we probably had around 5,500 cases. So with a few doublings, you can see that we probably might now have between 44,000 and 88,000 cases, which is, again, we're all coming to the same number for this estimate for the number of cases that are currently in the UK, and that's what the Chief Medical Officer said to Parliament earlier today. So these aren't magical numbers that are difficult to figure out. It's hard to be precise, but in terms of the magnitude, the power of 10, the approximate number, we can easily work them out on our own with toy models, at least for now. So in terms of the basic principles, for me, understanding this epidemic, there are these. We have the time lag principle. Because people take time to show symptoms and even longer to get sick enough to go to hospital, whatever stage you think you're at, you're likely a few weeks further along in terms of the people who have already been infected. So that's the time lag principle. You're further along than you think because there's a time delay between what's happened already in terms of people getting infected and when you realise it's happened that's part of what has made this disease so difficult to control. We have the idea of exponential growth that is potentially only limited by the basic reproduction number r naught, and the fraction of people that are going to get this disease before a sort of herd immunity kicks in where you um, are unlikely to be meeting people who aren't already immune and therefore you will be infecting people more slowly than you would otherwise. Now I want to talk about another key principle in understanding this epidemic that I've realised through obsessively reading about it. And this is what I'll call the confirmed case bias. So the point here is essentially a very simple one. Most people who are being tested for COVID-19 will be sick. Many of them will be very sick, sick enough to need to go to the hospital. Most cases of COVID-19 that are observed by medical professionals will be the most serious cases because they'll be the ones going to the hospital. If you have a mild cold or flu-like symptoms in Wuhan at the peak of the epidemic or Italy now, or soon enough anywhere else in the world, you're not going to be able to go to the hospital, there'll be too many other people who need it. So this means that the frontline healthcare workers see, for the most part, the sickest tip of the iceberg. In the limit, imagine an extreme case where a disease was totally undetectable for 99.9% of people, and killed 0.1% almost instantly. This might actually be true of some diseases, but I feel like we're all such hypochondriacs right now, I won't go into that anymore. All cases detected by the hospitals would be the ones who died straight away, and we'd assume that the disease had a huge fatality rate, because all we see is people dying and not all the people who basically don't know they have the disease. So the reality with COVID-19 is that somewhere between that and what we might hope would happen. So bearing in mind that the hospitals are seeing the worst cases at the moment, let's quickly talk about what the hospitals are seeing. For this I'll refer to the Chinese CDC study which focused on the outbreak in Wuhan, There's more information on this on the Worldometers website, Worldometers, which is very good for keeping track of this. Uh, That's what I've been using. Due to the extreme containment measures by Chinese authorities, and I mean extreme, people have not been allowed to leave their houses except for groceries for months, people who violate quarantine have been arrested, people have been required to wear equipment, protective equipment in public at all times. The initial outbreak there is essentially over, I think. So it's actually a decent case study for what a completed outbreak might look like. And the hospitals in China have observed that of the patients admitted, typical symptoms look like this. 88% of people had a fever. 68% had a cough. 38% felt unusually tired. 33% had a wet cough. 19% felt shortness of breath. 15% said muscle pain. 14% sore throat. 14% headache. 11% felt chills and the rest of the symptoms were much less common. One I will note is runny nose 5%. I think this is really important information to know. I had a cold a couple of weeks ago. The main symptom was a really really runny nose so I assumed that it wasn't coronavirus because it would be unlikely to appear without a fever. If it was coronavirus, which is unlikely, but if it was, then it was a mild case. At the time... Uh, That was a few weeks ago, as I say. My estimate for the cases in the UK was very small, so I thought the chances of me getting one is very, very low. It would be nice if it was, though, because then I would be immune and I could not worry about this so much on a personal level. The other thing that the doctors observed, and this is really, really crucial to understanding why we are where we are now, is that approximately 80% of the cases were mild. They just looked like ordinary flu, not nice at all, not pleasant to live through, but the kind of thing you could really recover from at home if you wanted to. 15% of the cases were moderate and needed some kind of medical support such as oxygen to get through. And 5% of the cases were severe. These were the cases that needed a lot of medical care, some quite substantial medical interventions such as intensive care, being put on a ventilator etc to get through and survive. Now these numbers were available since mid-February when we were all discussing them on online forums so anyone acting like this is a sudden surprise based on data from Italy is lying to you but unfortunately experiences in Italy and other countries now corroborating this data right now. So of the cases that show up at hospital 80% mild, 15% need some help, 5% need severe help and this I'm afraid is where the terrible nature of this disease arises. Let's ignore the confirmed case bias for a moment, the fact that hospitals are seeing just the worst of the outbreak. If 5% of cases require some kind of intensive care then you can do the calculation. Perhaps 60% of people get sick in the UK, perhaps 5% of those need intensive care. That's 2.1 million people needing intensive care at some point over the next however many months for this epidemic. The UK currently has 1,000 intensive care beds available, 4,000 in total, but 3,000 of them are usually being used by people who need intensive care for other reasons, and of course if they don't get that care then they, they could die too. Sadly, you know, people will continue to need intensive care for other reasons just because an epidemic is on. That's the mismatch we're talking about here, 2.1 million versus 1,000. So you can see, unfortunately, in an epidemic like this one, it almost doesn't matter how good your healthcare system is. If these numbers are anything like correct, and they could be wrong by a factor of 10, you know, it could be 210,000 versus 1,000, doesn't matter. If you happen to need care at some point, you're unlikely to be able to get it. And it is this prospect of the high ratio of people who need intensive care that has led to the apparently draconian lockdowns that are now taking place across much of Europe, affected areas in the United States, and what have been seen in places like China, East Asia for a while already. Even if these numbers are off by a factor of 10, and we can get five times as many beds ready, you could still see tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in need of ICU who can't get it in my country, who will unfortunately likely die. It, it is that serious, which is why the shutdowns and the lockdowns, as annoying as they are for all of us, are completely justified in my view. They have also observed the following as far as fatality rates go. Now I should say this is specifically for the outbreak in Wuhan. For part of this outbreak, the healthcare system was overwhelmed and people were not getting ideal treatment. So we have a tricky situation here. When we're talking about the fatality rate, do you quote the fatality rate for the disease assuming that you get great medical care? Or do you take into account the likely strain on medical care systems which will cause fatality rates to rise? I hope I've persuaded you that assuming medical care will be severely strained is a good assumption right now, so Wuhan numbers might be the best we can hope for. And here they are. They said that overall, adjusted for everything that happens, they think around 1.6% of people who get this will will pass away. Um, If you're between the ages of 0 and 9, the kids, thank goodness, the kids are okay. 0.01%. 1 in 10,000. 0.01%, that's 1 in 10,000. If you're between the ages of 10 and 19, 0.02%. If you're between the ages of 20 and 29, that's me, 0.1%, 1 in 1,000. If you're between the ages of 30 and 39, 0.2%. Forty and forty-nine, 0.4 percent. One in five, uh, two hundred or so. If you're between the ages of fifty and fifty-nine, 1.3 percent. Sixty and sixty-nine, 4.6 percent. Seventy and seventy-nine, 9.8 percent. Eighty plus, 18 percent. So overall, 1.6 percent. For young people, the odds are less than one in a thousand. For people who are middle-aged, the odds are 1 in 200, 1 in 300, up to 1 in 100 if you're in your 50s. For older people, 5%, 10%, 20% starts getting a lot more disturbing. So, this disease is much less severe in the young than the elderly, although deaths amongst young people are not unheard of here. One interesting thing about this study, uh, the Chinese study that I'm quoting from here, is they tried to take into account the two effects that we've been talking about already, the bias in hospitals who didn't identify people with symptoms, and the delay bias that arrives because it takes a while for cases that are going to die to unfortunately go on to, to die. Now, there's also data surrounding people with underlying health conditions that suggest the death rate amongst people who are diabetic or with high blood pressure or with cardiovascular or breathing issues could be 6 or 7%. It's roughly the same for all of those conditions, actually, six or seven percent. Now, I can't set too much store by this data myself simply because it's correlated with age. So as you get older, you're more likely to develop these underlying health conditions. For this reason, it's really hard to say, right? I mean, my brother is is diabetic. He's 21. Um, so the 0.2% rate for people in their 20s is not right for him. The 7% rate for diabetics is not right for him because a lot of those diabetics will be older. Um... Both of those numbers are much too high for me to be happy about the risk over the coming weeks and months for someone I care about, but that's the reality of the situation that we're in at the moment. So I'm not really going to quote those numbers, but what we can say for sure, um, and what might be a good rule of thumb, is to note that if the average rate for all people is 1.6% and the average rate for people with underlying medical conditions is uh, 6 or 7%, then maybe, maybe... If you have an underlying medical condition, you're perhaps four times more likely to uh, have serious complications from this illness. Although I really I don't know about that, so just bear in mind that these medical conditions do unfortunately uh, mean that you are more likely to be ill. But it's very hard to say at this moment what that means in terms of your age, uh, purely because uh, we can't really disentangle the age from the uh, condition yet until we have more numbers. And we also know from this evidence that the fatality rate is approximately twice as much in men than it is in women. I say to my female friends a lot that having a better immune system is basically a small repayment for the amount of nonsense they usually have to put up with on a day-to-day basis from men, and they tend to agree with me, so there we go. That's been tough for me to say and discuss and talk about in the context of the real world and not the context of some some scenario for the apocalypse that might not happen, you know, that I that I like to discuss before when I was talking about all of these things in these Walkie specials. It's difficult to talk about this, but that that is the potential reality that is facing us. I think it's important that we understand that and bear it in mind, because we're all going to have to do some difficult things to help stop that from happening over the next few weeks and months, and we need to know what the stakes are for us to understand them. So I don't shy away from saying it, I've been telling people for, for weeks now that this is the sort of thing that could happen. And th- th- it, 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 is, it is very possible, unfortunately. Okay, let's talk about the good news a little bit, because I think there is potentially some good news on the horizon that is not yet widely circulated, although, again, it all comes with a grain of salt. It all comes with a grain of salt. Because, unfortunately, pandemics are not replete with good news. They really aren't. The first is to go back to that case confirmation bias. So people at the hospitals are only seeing the worst cases. They're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. They're only likely to see people who are the worst affected. It's actually quite rare that a full population is entirely tested for coronavirus because testing is rightly prioritised to people with the worst symptoms. But when this has happened, there have been some interesting results. The Diamond Princess cruise ship, as I'm sure you're aware, Had a single case of coronavirus that eventually resulted in hundreds of cases due to the uh, botched quarantine attempt on that cruise ship. They tested everyone on that cruise ship, it's a rare example of a full population being tested. They found that half the patients on there had no symptoms at all from coronavirus when they tested positive. Some of them may have gone on to develop symptoms but we don't know that information, we don't have it. It's worth noting that as of today's best estimate 696 people on the Diamond Princess got coronavirus, and 7 died. That's around 1%. 15 people are still in critical condition, although this was higher a few weeks ago, and 450 are listed as fully recovered already. It's worth noting the Diamond Princess is a cruise ship, so the average age there is pretty high compared to a normal population, just because of who tends to go on cruises. I don't have exact data for that, it would be nice to know. Um, There will be papers out there that will try and use that to estimate. Uh, rates just from this one population. Similarly, a town in Italy recently tested its entire population for coronavirus, a town of about 3,000 people. The article was in Italian and certainly isn't confirmed just yet and certainly isn't a scientific paper, but it also suggested that up to 50% of those tested had no symptoms. Iceland, a small nation of 300,000 people, I was there a year or so ago, It was it's lovely, please go if you get the chance, not right now but at some point, They recently tested a big sample of around 3,000 people at random. They found that around 1% of the country had coronavirus on average based on that sample. So maybe 3,000 people have coronavirus in Iceland right now. Half of those that they tested had no symptoms at all. Half of them had symptoms that resembled a mild cold or flu. So far, as of today, there has just been one death in Iceland and only one person is listed in critical condition, although of course these numbers can change. So far, so far, that's looking like a good situation out of Iceland. And what we're finding here is that a lot of people have no symptoms at all from this disease. Until we have large-scale screening, we can't really know what fraction of people have mild illnesses and what fraction of people have no symptoms at all. There are only anecdotal lines of evidence so far. And in some ways, this is, of course, a very mixed blessing. The fact that so many people can be infected with this virus and apparently not even notice they have it is great. If you're like me, you think this is a coin flip. Perhaps I already had the virus and never noticed it. Perhaps I have it now and I don't notice it. Perhaps for me personally, not caring about anyone else, the epidemic is already over. And it's good for those figures that we talked about too. Um, You can cut the death rate in half. You can cut the serious cases in half because half of those people won't even realise they have symptoms. So it's not 5% of the fully infected population, it's 5% only of the infected people. So that's half as many people. If this is borne out by further studies and i just i really really hope that it is at this point then we're talking about millions of lives here that are potentially not going to be you know in jeopardy over this thing that's not a small thing it really isn't not in times like this we need to to know about this um and who knows maybe we'll get even luckier and there's even more serious case recognition bias than we currently expect and it will turn out that the death rates can be reasonably low ultimately and Often death rates are overestimated in the early days of a pandemic because of this serious case recognition bias. But of course the sting in the tail here is that if as many as 50% of people really are completely asymptomatic then this thing is going to be impossible to contain which is what we're finding right now. People can run around they don't even know they have symptoms who could ever find out it was them transmitting the disease without even knowing it. And remember, no one is responsible here except the virus. The virus is just a dumb strand of genetic code that has no conception of morals anyway. It doesn't care, and it's not those people's fault if they're asymptomatic and spreading the disease. Given this thing is out there, and it can't be contained now, um, you know, th- this, this asymptomatic ratio, the fact that lots of people don't get symptoms, it made the disease so much harder to contain. Containment is over, now containment is over. I think this is the best news we can get for a while. Uh, we don't know how true this is yet and um, hopefully you know a big fraction of people will have no symptoms at all but uh, we need more information on this which again is why i completely support the lockdowns which frankly should have happened earlier and if it hasn't happened in your country yet then it really should be happening now if at all possible i saw one fascinating study which suggested using a mathematical model that um maybe perhaps as many as 5% of the population of Wuhan could have had the virus? If that's true, then the 3,000 deaths in Wuhan uh, would mean, even with a strained medical system, the mortality rate of the epidemic in total was just 0.5%. So I don't know how true that will ultimately prove to be, and I don't know how strained our medical systems will get and how many people will die for other reasons during this epidemic, just as I can't be sure what r naught really is. But if this is true, then it's a sign that the worst-case scenarios I pointed to earlier will be wrong at the end of the day, and I would be so happy. I'd be so happy if they were wrong. Luckily, some new information should be arising pretty soon about how much this confirmed case bias is really affecting our thinking at the moment. This is in the form of something called a serology test. So basically, they test your blood for antibodies. The body's immune system is really a remarkable thing. When it detects a new pathogen, a new virus or a bacteria, it learns how to produce proteins that destroy that virus or bacteria. This is what gives you immunity to diseases, these antibodies, these proteins that your body produces to repel the invader, stay in your system for a long time, your body remembers how to make them. So with this test, we'll be able to see how many people have these antibodies in their system, and therefore how many people have ever had the virus at all, and learned to fight it off. Even if they just had a mild case, even if they didn't notice they had it, we'll be able to find them with this serology test, and we'll get a proper estimate of the actual fatality rate, and the actual severe case rate. And with any luck, they'll be better than the 1% fatality and the 5% severe case rate with good healthcare that we've seen so far. And that's really the best we can hope for at the moment. It's worth pointing out, and I think it's really worth remembering, that a disease which spreads really, really quickly and has a very, very low fatality rate will look a lot like a disease which spreads more slowly but kills more people. So in a lot of ways, now this is out there and we can't contain it, that's the best thing we can hope for. So these are the three principles that keep coming back to me in this pandemic. Number one, delayed reaction. People who die, they lag behind symptoms, which lag behind infections. You're always further along the curve than you think you are. Principle two is exponential growth, limited only by R0. So the potential for this pandemic is ultimately really very great because there's no immunity. Perhaps 60% of the population in total could get it growth is extremely rapid. It happens in percentages, not numbers. Uh, Yes, the percentages will continue to increase. And in a few weeks, a few weeks is all it takes to go from hundreds of thousands, hundreds to thousands of cases, and then from tens of thousands to a million. And the third principle is this confirmed case bias. The situation on the ground at hospitals will be very bad, but it might actually overestimate what's going on because a lot of less severe cases are missed by testing. And don't end up in hospital at all, particularly asymptomatic cases. Now, these things have been known to virologists and epidemiologists for years and years and years. Uh, They could tell you about them far better than I have. Um, It's just these are the things that I've noticed in reading about this so far. There is a very important dimension which has been missed so far, and that's what we can do to help. Social distancing measures, the idea to keep away from people, are absolutely crucial right now especially if we don't know who does or doesn't have the disease due to the high fraction of asymptomatic cases. If you can be spreading it and you don't know you have it, then it's best to keep away from people. It's absolutely vital that we keep social contact to a minimum, work from home where we can, and so on. I think people in public should be having masks and protective equipment when they can, but that should be prioritised to the healthcare workers. The economic disruption from this, which will probably have to be in place for many, many months now, is going to be vast, And all of our efforts should be focused on fighting this pandemic or fighting that economic disruption in one way or another. Make no mistake here, this thing is going to define the year 2020, maybe 2021. It's going to leave an impact on the following decade like a world war or a Great Depression would. We haven't seen anything like this in our lifetimes. We're living through history and it's going to be a long haul situation for all of these things, I'm afraid, as you've doubtless been realising already over the last few days and weeks. Even if social distancing is successful, if the numbers hold up, this is going to be an awful situation for a long time to come. You can see pretty simply if you go back to remembering the idea that maybe a million people might need a thousand ICU beds in the UK. If social distancing and other measures to slow the spread can successfully slow the spread, then you must understand that we would need to do them for years and years for everyone who needs an ICU bed to get one. Naively, let's assume everyone only needs ICU for one week, and we can upgrade capacity to as many as 10,000 ICU beds nationwide, which would obviously be huge. That's 10 times higher than now. Then it would still take two years to safely process all of those million people. Uh, 50. It would still take two years to successfully process all of those people uh, through the ICU. Um, it would be, you know, 50 weeks times 10,000 beds, 500,000 people, two years, and you know if we can't boost the beds by that much then it would be smaller the death rate would still be somewhat high as the icu can't save everyone even if you get icu you probably have a one percent chance of dying so you know of those million people um, a significant fraction maybe two hundred thousand, would would end up dying anyway but it wouldn't be four or five times higher as much as the icu is not there for the people who need it so it's the difference between, you know, potentially up to a million people uh, dying of this in the UK versus 100,000 if we can do this social distancing. And that's going to be hundreds of thousands of lives that could work. But, but for that to work, we'll need to keep these measures in place for a really long time. Um, and it's important to, to bear that in mind as we go forward. Um, And that's assuming that our social distancing measures can perfectly control how many people get the disease at any given time, which seems very naive, to say the least. Okay, treatments. Viruses are notoriously difficult to treat. The main reason for this is how viruses reproduce versus how bacteria reproduce. We can treat bacteria with antibiotics, which are just chemicals in the bloodstream that kill bacteria. That's great, that works fine. But viruses are bizarre things, because they can only reproduce inside of a host cell. Once they invade that, they convert it into machinery for creating more and more of themselves. So finding a chemical that will just destroy the virus and leaving the human cell that it lives in intact is really difficult. Sometimes they try to block the virus from ever entering a cell. Sometimes they try and muck about with the chemical processes that occur within the cell. Lots of the antivirals that do exist have some pretty nasty side effects, and how they work is really complicated. I don't understand it, but I think it's it's worth saying they're closer to chemotherapy than antibiotics uh, in some cases. Plenty of them are currently being trialled for use with coronavirus. There's some very early preliminary evidence that chloroquine, which is used to combat malaria, and remdesivir, which I think is used for HIV, uh, might be effective. But at this stage, they're basically just throwing everything they can at the problem to try and figure out what's going to work here. Um, I expect that only the most severe cases will ever try to use antiviral drugs. There aren't that many of them around, and they could do more harm than good unless your patient is in a severe case. So it's going to be mostly our immune systems and us against this thing, unfortunately. It's going to be difficult to work this out in terms of how effective they can be how much we want to use them on who in a few months maybe a new one will be manufactured that's what happened in the swine flu pandemic in 2009 they made something called tamiflu which uh, may or may not have been effective we don't really know Um, at the time it was thought to be effective subsequent studies have said maybe it wasn't so great so just goes to show antivirals not a precise science at the moment hopefully we get a good one can't rely on that vaccines work on vaccines is already underway With a vaccine, as you know, the aim is to introduce a little bit of dead virus into someone's system so that their immune system can recognise it and learn to produce antibodies uh, to defeat the virus without giving them a full-blown illness. But vaccines are very difficult to make. No vaccine for a coronavirus has yet been manufactured. They gave up on researching the SARS vaccine after it became clear that this outbreak had ended in 2003 because, you know, it costs a lot of money to research into a SARS vaccine, and if there's no SARS, why would you bother, right? Again, in the earlier pandemics episode, I feel like I was kind of naive about how easy it was to make vaccines, but I did suggest that it might be worth spending more than a few hundred million dollars on researching vaccines, because the consequences of a real pandemic would be much worse than that, and it's necessary for society to be geared up to combat unlikely, but massive threats. These existential risks, these catastrophic risks, we had a whole series about them, the Teot-Wauke series society needs to be ready to deal with these things because they might seem unlikely and they will be unlikely until they happen where i'm sitting now the stock market has collapsed by about 33 wiping trillions of dollars of supposedly real money off the face of the market and very real money out of your pensions and savings accounts and the economic impact of this shutdown and of this virus is going to be huge it's going to be massive uh, businesses are going to struggle you may well be struggling thinking about where your next paycheck is coming from It seems now that if only spending billions upon billions of vaccine research a few months ago, a few years ago, had been done in advance, if all it did was speed up the end of this lockdown by a few months, it would be unbelievably worthwhile. It seems likely that a vaccine will be manufactured and will be made. Trials are already underway. The issue is that you need to test the vaccine really thoroughly. The human body is extremely complex, we don't fully understand it yet. The human body is extremely complex. We don't fully understand it yet. Um, If if a vaccine, we can't predict what would happen with a vaccine um, until it's been tested. Now, if a virus kills 0.5% of people who may not ever get it, but the vaccine kills 1% of people consistently, the vaccine is more dangerous than the virus. Now, there are some vaccines in the past, like the Ebola vaccine. The disease you're protecting against is so deadly that it might be worth a 1% risk of dying from the vaccine to avoid a much higher risk of dying of Ebola especially if you know that you're going to be exposed to the Ebola virus if you're a healthcare professional and so on. So they did test the Ebola vaccine a lot, but it was better for it. It was okay for it to be less safe. But in this case, they need to test the thing really thoroughly and observe if there are any medium-term consequences for the patients who get it. And it's this testing that takes the longest time. And so when all the experts in the pharmaceutical companies say that a vaccine could take a year or 18 months to fully develop, sadly, I do believe them. I do think that's realistic. Even that would be a record. We're talking about something that's never been done before in terms of manufacturing a vaccine against a coronavirus. So, you know, hopefully somehow it comes along quicker, but don't expect it to. We can't rely on that to save us in the short term because the blockage here is not money. It's not so much uh, skilled personnel. It's not anything like that. It is these human trials and how long do you have to take to do them? So, you know, you could rush out something that's less safe and maybe ultimately people will try and do that or there will be some temptation to do that. We'll be watching this in the coming weeks and months and see what happens and see if the vaccine is effective. Um, But yeah, we can't rely on it. Unfortunately, we just can't. Until, of course, a year or 18 months time. So, you know, there's the potential that we lock down for a long time uh, and try and live a sort of vaguely normal life until a vaccine is ready. And then we emerge uh, armed with a vaccine against this. But I don't know what will happen. So after all that, what does this mean, do I think? Uh, The long-term outcomes for the virus itself, we can try to infer from past pandemics. Sometimes pandemics have faded in the summer, only to return in the autumn, as with the Spanish flu in 1918-19. We don't know if that's true here. We know that the coronaviruses are amongst the viruses that circulate amongst us and cause the common cold. So, you know, we're experiencing now what ancestors of ours, uh, humans from maybe tens of thousands of years ago, experienced once, which is a new coronavirus that emerges from animals and goes into people. This has happened several times before, and some of those viruses ended up becoming the cold, the common cold that we get nowadays. So it could be that in time, after this first wave has gone over us, uh, this new coronavirus will come back in a much less deadly form, and it will just be another one of those endemic diseases, the ones that circulate amongst us, but they don't cause massive outbreaks or epidemics because, uh, you know, you're meeting people who are immune, you get the cold, someone else might not have that particular strain of cold, maybe a few people get it, maybe they don't, etc. These diseases that we have to deal with every single day. So it could be that this is a new form of the common cold. Eventually, after this initial pandemic wave has has hit us, it could be, as is the case with some outbreaks, that this whole thing burns itself out and we don't see this virus again. Uh, just just goes away after doing whatever it's done. I think that the most likely outcome is probably that it becomes a new form of the common cold. We've seen that happen before, and uh, maybe it will eventually mutate into a less dangerous form but I think it will circulate a lot first. Uh, There's more evolutionary pressure to select for less deadly strains than more deadly strains for the reasons we've discussed. Now, it seems likely to me that most people who get the strain will be immune to the strain. I know there's a lot of rumours and misinformation out there that's saying, you know, oh, there's no evidence you get immune to it, maybe you can get it twice. There have been a few cases of people who've tested negative and then tested positive again. Um, That's just as likely to be testing error as anything else. In some cases we know even for normal colds some people can get them twice if they have uh, weaker immune systems that's true um the, the the main reason why i don't think that you can get this thing twice in the way people are saying is in china one of the ways they stopped this epidemic was with quarantine hospitals okay so everyone who's sick goes into one big hospital now you can see why that wouldn't work if you could get it twice right because you'd be recovering and you'd be recovered and then you'd be in the quarantine hospital, and you'd get it again, and quarantine hospitals wouldn't work, and everyone would just continually be getting sick the whole time. Similarly, you know, we have cases where uh, a husband and wife might have the same thing, so there's people on the Diamond Princess, for example, you know, if one person gets sick, and then gets better, and they're living together, um, and the other person is now sick, then they would reinfect that person, wouldn't they? And the fact that we haven't seen that being reported makes me think, it works like any other virus, you know, this is not some magical virus. This is something that's happened many, many times before, and our best scientific evidence is that to this strain you'll be immune. Maybe next year, maybe in a few years, it will mutate into a different strain, like the flu, and you won't be immune to that. So you can get the flu twice. You know, sadly, unfortunately. Um, But I think for this particular strain, yeah, you'll be immune to it. I don't see why you wouldn't be. Um, And I think that that's going to be the most likely outcome of this pandemic at the moment. Um, So. In all likelihood, this will probably be the most deadly strain of the new coronavirus that we see in the future. But without being a virologist, you know, I don't know for sure. So what does this mean for society in the short term? I'm afraid very difficult things. Every major healthcare system in the world is likely to soon be overwhelmed with coronavirus cases. If you can do anything to support healthcare workers, now is the time, because they're going to be on the front line, saving lives for the foreseeable future. Individual societies will face difficult choices between draconian lockdowns, which can suppress the epidemic for a time as long as they can be maintained. Wuhan has never come out of lockdown. It's still in lockdown. So we don't know what will happen when they come out of lockdown. But there is a chance. I mean, that's one of the reasons we should be in lockdown, is to see whether they have actually stamped this thing out, whether it's possible to do so in the two months that they've been in lockdown. But, you know, we don't know for sure what will happen after a lockdown. Um, Chances are the virus will circulate again in Wuhan. And it will circulate again whenever the lockdown is finished so we have a choice societies face choices between draconian lockdowns which can suppress the epidemic for a time as long as they can be maintained and a spiraling epidemic which will result in many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dead people this will be the case for the next year or two at least until a vaccine can be developed and widely deployed i can't see any way that we can get out of this pandemic without bad things happening unfortunately i really wish that i could i really do But the economic and societal shock is going to be huge. The shock to the medical system and to the most vulnerable populations amongst us is going to be huge. All of this seems sadly obvious now. I think we're going to see some very interesting social phenomena. I think we're going to see how people and populations cope with stress and trauma that's unlike what they've normally had to deal with. We might see strange things. Young people getting the virus intentionally, for example, so they can join the ranks of the immune and return to some kind of normal life where they don't have to worry about getting sick and they don't have to worry about infecting the people around them, as examples. We're going to see a lot of boredom and quite a lot of tragedy and hopefully a lot of stories of human resilience because you know we're going to make it through this thing we're going to get through this as a species just like we've survived everything else up until now it's going to be a bumpy road the risk to you and even to people around you is almost certainly quite small um that th- th- we we've, we've been over the numbers you know maybe half of people have no symptoms, maybe 1% of people with symptoms, 0.5% of people with symptoms go on to die, um, and maybe half of people will end up getting the virus overall, so, you know, your risk is one in a thousand, one in, if you're unlucky, it's one in a hundred. I, you know, again, I wish I could tell you that it was better than that, um, we probably take one in a thousand risks all the time, you know, when you're driving around, how common are car accidents, you know, when you when you go on an aeroplane, some risk involved with that. When you go in for surgery in a hospital, um, there's always risks involved in every part of your life. This is unfortunately now one of them, and we all just have to live with that and uh, make our own peace with it, I think. What does this mean for society in the long term? I don't know. I'm not foolish enough to pretend I know these things. There's a famous quote by a historian about the French Revolution. They were asked about what they thought the impact of the French Revolution would ultimately be, and they said, ask me in a few hundred years when it's over. I can tell you what I hope will happen. Those who listen to the show will know how long I spent talking about existential risks, talking about nuclear war, talking about pandemics and bioterror and climate change and supervolcanoes and asteroid strikes and everything else that can concern us. And when I focused on these apocalyptic threats, these catastrophic risks, a lot of people told me, stop being so morbid. I understand that i understand how hard it is to think about these things focusing on the worst case scenario for so long in climate change where i do my main research and now for this pandemic has not even been remotely easy it depresses the hell out of me to think about this stuff i can understand why people don't want to think about it and bury their heads in the sand and not even prepare for the worst case scenario but it's here now and failure to prepare is going to look increasingly bad i want to get I want to get personal and emotional here, and I'm sorry that this show is going to be hard for people to listen to, you know, it's it's a therapeutic exercise for me, so turn it off if you can't listen to any more, but I I want to get personal here, Um, and then I promise there will be a hopeful message at the end. I had to stop the show in November, and it's only coming back now in March, because I was sick. I don't know what the cause was. The doctors thought it was some sort of viral infection, obviously not this one, some other viral infection maybe I was depressed. I don't know. All I know is that for about a month, you know, I couldn't get out of bed most days or form coherent sentences in conversation. And towards the end of it, I was wondering if I would get better or if I'd just be stuck with whatever that condition was. And thankfully, you know, I did get better. I did recover. Not totally, but I'm on the mend. I've been working for the last few weeks. Uh, uh, I've been better. But it made me reevaluate a lot of things. And it made me Reevaluate the risks that we have in our life, and it actually made me a lot more concerned about this pandemic. So, on the 11th of February 2020, I I, I wrote about it in my diary, and I want to share that with you. Um, so this is what I wrote. This feels stupid to write, but it might make me feel better. That's the only reason I've ever kept a diary, so I broke the habit. I was pretty sick last year, ill enough that I was confined to bed, feeling weak and fatigued for several weeks. I still don't know what was wrong. Now there is a novel coronavirus, something that came out of the markets in China, perhaps, and has already killed a thousand people there. It seems to have all of the characteristics of the deadly viruses I studied in the Pandemic's Teotihuacan episodes, spreads without symptoms, can kill up to 2% of those infected, maybe more if the healthcare system is overwhelmed. Eight people in the UK already have it, and people don't seem to understand why I'm really nervous and worried about this thing taking off here. I don't know what's going to happen, obviously. At this juncture, it's hard to say for certain, so few of the facts are well pinned down, there's always an element of luck to all of these things. Plenty of people, probably more than we know, get this illness and essentially don't experience any symptoms worse than an ordinary flu. It's the ones that do get worse that you have to worry about. At the same time, I am struck, as I was when researching those Teotihuacan episodes so many months ago, by the fact that we really take an awful lot of things for granted. We take the stability of systems, of the world around us, for granted. We take the idea that each day is just another day to get through, Of no particular significance in the grander scheme of the narrative of our lives for granted. We'll casually plan things, weeks, months, years ahead, as I'm doing right now, my calendar is full of people to interview, as if we have some level of certainty that we won't suddenly be struck by an unexpected and rapid change of priorities, as if we know, as if we're blessed with that knowledge. And yet, coronavirus or no coronavirus, extinction level, meteorite event or nuclear war or none of these things, these certainties are so often shattered, And whole societies, too, see their certainties crumble around them. It happens all the time. It happens to us in our individual lives, and it happens to us as groups. Of course, it's like mortality itself. You can't ever think about it. You can't allow yourself to think about the inevitability of that extraction from everything you know, and the impossibility of fathoming what might come next if it were to happen to you. I... And here I swear which I won't do on the podcast because I know there's a few kids who listen to it so I try and avoid swearing sorry I hope that all of the plans and half-formed half-baked notions about the distant future that were in my head can all come to fruition one way or another and I can go back to worrying about the years and not the weeks and the months I really do it's a luxury like good health that most of us take for granted when we have it and then rue the days we took it for granted when we no longer can so that was what I was thinking (laughs) Then, when eight cases were confirmed in the UK. I don't say this to say I told you so. This is because I'm not that smart. I'm an idiot. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. They knew that something like this would happen at some point, and they've been warning us for years. There have been people warning that we were not ready for the next pandemic for as long as we can remember. Bill Gates 2015 was one example, but genuinely, for as long as anyone can remember, people have been saying this. These virologists and epidemiologists... They knew that this virus was this dangerous pretty much as soon as any information came out about it back in January. They've been warning us for months, they've been warning governments for months the scale of the action that might need to be taken. If your government now appears unprepared or is only taking actions that would have been useful earlier now, like constructing more hospital capacity, testing people, buying masks, building more hospitals, etc., you have to ask yourself why those warnings were ignored or downplayed early on. Different priorities. It took China to lock down one of its biggest cities for me to realise that this was a problem, at which point it should have been clear to everyone. So I'm not a prophet. I'm just someone who is uh, concerned about things more than other people. And so I was a bit chicken little about this. And unfortunately, it's turned out to pan out that way. I'm far less smart than these people are. The point is, though, that we were warned for so, so long and we ignored the warning. SARS was 2003. MERS was 2011. Approximately once every 10 years, a virus crosses over in this way. How many other epidemics have there been from other sources? How many other times did we play Russian roulette until one of these viruses was sufficiently bad enough that we couldn't stop it? And I'm not saying that we could have stopped this, but the fact that we as a species have spent more money over the last few years on nonsense, pointless financial speculation on tech companies with flaky business models, skyrocketing prices for essentials like real estate, on making the uber-rich uber-rich, on Halloween pet costumes, luxury holidays, luxury food, Whatever other trivial and irrelevant nonsense looks so trivial and irrelevant now. The fact that we've spent money on all of these silly things and spent time thinking about these silly things compared to big existential risks for the future of our species, you know, how much research has gone into viruses? How much research has gone into epidemics? How much research has gone into, you know, the next potential epidemic? How much money does the World Health Organization have? You know, that their budget is less than that of a big American hospital. And they're the people who are supposed to protect us from this stuff. So all of this has come back to bite us in the bum in a very big way. This was not unforeseeable. It was foreseen by the experts, just like all the other catastrophic risks that we covered way back in 2017. So I don't know what will happen in the long term, but I hope it will inspire a change in priorities. Right now, your priorities and my priorities are shifting from whatever they were a few weeks ago to looking after those closest to you and your own health. Society's priorities must also shift as a result of this. We have to take these low-probability, high-risk events more seriously. We have to do more planning for foreseeable catastrophes. We have to be smarter. We have to cooperate internationally more. We talked a lot about nuclear history in this podcast before, just like the scientists in the wake of the nuclear bomb concluded that with such a deadly power on the Earth, there could only be one world or none. We have to find a way to get closer to one world cooperating so that we can avoid the threats that are common to us all. This virus, future pandemics, climate change, nuclear war, existential risks in general, they affect everyone to some extent or another. We have to avoid this normalcy bias, this idea that things will continue to go the way they have gone for time immemorial because history shows us that they don't. Bad things happen, recessions, crashes, wars, pandemics natural disasters. Technological changes that we haven't even thought about impacting things in a negative way can disrupt the way that things work. We need to avoid thinking that these things can't happen and prepare for if they do. We need to be smarter, more organised. We need to be willing to devote a greater fraction of our resources to trying to avert these catastrophes that could come rather than just enjoying the good times, which is what we do. We need to be willing to accept that the party might end, that things might shift, that there might be downsides, We need to be willing to accept that a lot of the time when you're trying to be prepared for these things, it will look like you're wasting money. It will look like you're wasting resources on some low-probability, high-consequence event. I mean, it seems silly to waste resources on something like that, until it happens. Because these resources, they won't look wasted when you're staring down the barrel of what cure means, having failed at prevention. They really won't. If this could have been prevented, who's to say it could have been prevented? But there were warnings, and there was reason to suspect that this would happen And a lot of people could have told you that these markets and this uh, particular environment, these particular practices, were reasons for that. You know, in all of these episodes, we've talked about how in a globalised society, a threat to one is a threat to all, and that's why we need to have this global cooperation. We can't be isolationist about these things. We can't pretend that it's some other country's problem or someone else's problem, because it will soon be your problem uh, because of how connected we are. And who's to say whether it would even be successful? Who knows if any system that we can construct would be robust enough, clever enough, wise enough, and possessed of enough foresight to deal with something like this. But at least if we tried, we would not have to deal with the massive, massive downside that arises when something goes wrong. And this, I think, is going to expose a lot of flaws in our existing systems for running the world, in the existing fabric of our society, in the priorities that we've had before. And you know what those priorities were and why they're failing us now and ways in which they will continue to fail us. But it is the case that disasters offer us an opportunity to reshape society. I was actually working on a podcast series to that effect, which is based on a book called The Great Leveller by Walter Scheidel, um, which is now going to take on a whole new and much darker light, unfortunately. Um, And yes, disasters. This is a disaster that is is happening. Um, Allow us to reshape society. And if we can learn from our mistakes, you know, that's the only way people ever learn. People can give you all the advice that you want, you know, but... You have to make that mistake yourself. You have to learn the hard way. And there's pain involved in doing that. But with that, there's a chance to do things better next time, to build a much better world, a wiser world, a safer world. Okay, so that's a really vague thing. What can we do practically? Right now, right now, we are all living through history and we have an opportunity to influence how that history goes. Okay, don't feel powerless because you have power. There are mutual aid groups right now being established across the world. They will help people in your community. Right now there's someone out there who is medically vulnerable because they're old, because they have a pre-existing condition. You can help them if you're young and healthy. Get shopping for them. Check in on them. Make sure they're okay. Renew the ties with the people you had neglected. Everyone is going to be feeling miserable. Talk to them. Cheer them up. Make them feel better. Let them know that you care. Do whatever you can to support the healthcare and emergency services in this, their hour of need. And social distancing slow the spread of this pandemic as much as possible by avoiding these unnecessary contacts by staying indoors by working from home if you can by uh, avoiding contact with people especially especially if you have symptoms please stay home by doing this you'll protect people and ultimately you will save lives a few weeks ago okay when it was a much smaller issue than it seems in europe today I bought up a whole load of masks to protect myself from this, uh, the fancy respirator-ventilator kind. They're not necessary. I'm young, mostly pretty healthy. I'll make it through this. So, you know, I was in hospital the other day for some of these ongoing health conditions I was talking about. I gave the masks to A&E at my local hospital earlier this week, and they were happy to have them. This was the very least I could do. I've spent some money, I've bought up more, I've sent them to the local hospital where I'm told that they don't have these uh, this equipment. If you have that kind of resource at your disposal, I don't know who listens to this, but if you have that kind of resource at your disposal, please consider doing the same because it's going to be so so important. What can we do in general? We will get through this. There is no doubt about that. The human race has incredible fortitude. You will find that you yourself are capable of dealing with things that were unimaginable just a few weeks ago. We'll survive. Indeed. As I mentioned earlier, the important thing to remember is that for most of us, and for most of the people we care about, the chances of a serious outcome are very low indeed. Even if you are in the most at-risk group, if you're over the age of 80, then as far as we know, you have a 50% chance of getting the virus. Less if containment is successful. Less if you're isolated, which is what the plan is at the moment. So 50% is a worst-case scenario. And then you have maybe half of the time you'll have no symptoms or, uh, you know, mild symptoms So you have maybe a 25% chance, a quarter of a chance of even getting symptoms if you're over the age of 80. And then even then at the end of it, you know, a fifth of those people die. So 5% maybe of the over 80s um, will will go on to die from this. So even if you feel like you're in a category that is most at risk, the risk to you individually, obviously no one wants a 5% chance of dying, but if someone, you know, told you for example you needed a life-saving operation and you had a five percent chance of dying you'd you'd jump at them Um, it's not great but that is the worst case for people at the moment uh, that we can see so far and it could indeed get better if we can successfully keep these people away from the virus for as long as possible so we will survive most of us uh, almost all of us will survive and society will survive Society will emerge blinking and dazed from quarantine or pandemic, but there are some things that are required to help us do so. It's more necessary than ever to trust science and reason, but not to allow our knowledge and our calculations to get in the way of our compassion. It's more necessary than ever to focus on people's lives over profit and anything else short term. It's more necessary than ever to reach out to your fellow human beings and do what you can to help them. It's more necessary than ever to think about how we can build societies and structures in a way that take these risks into account. But, but above all, it's more necessary than ever to be brave and to be kind, and that's all we can do. So that's all I have to say on the subject for now. If people want a Q&A asking my opinions, whoever ends up listening to this, or if they want more about this situation, uh, and people let me know that they want to hear more, or if something major changes that I feel really needs an update. I probably will produce more shows on this subject, but otherwise the main plan is to return to the stuff I had planned before this all kicked off, and hopefully give you something distracting to listen to over the coming weeks and months that won't be quite so miserable. Um, please take care of yourselves and the people around you. Please take care of yourselves and the people around you. We're going to get through this. Be brave and be kind.